You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. What's your most contrarian call for this year, betting against the herd? I do think lithium is going to do well. You know, you sort of Google uh, gigafactories in the United States, and you'll find a map that shows you, you know, 40 gigafactories that are planned or being built. Well, things like Thacker Pass, which, you know, hopefully is turned on in two years, that's the lithium for one gigafactory. You are listening to MSE. I'm Bill Powers. And in today's show, you're going to hear from a fund manager that we haven't spoken to in a few years. We're talking about Will Thompson from Massive Cap. The website is massivecap.net. Will, welcome back onto the show. And your fund invests in real things and you take a long-term value-oriented approach. So the first question for you today is, where are you seeing value? Uh, well, Bill, thanks for having me back. It's been a couple of years, um, a tough couple of years for mining, which represents anywhere from about 25% to a third of our portfolio at any given time. Um, where are we seeing value today? Uh, from a top-down perspective, I think it's really complicated and really hard. Uh, I think that for at least the next 12 months, and I definitely felt this way about last year, it's going to be uh, difficult to sort of identify commodities uh, and or trends in commodities that are really supportive of broad exposure to, say, mining or copper or gold. Uh, but I do think there will be a lot of catalysts or a lot more catalyst-driven opportunities. And so the places we're looking right now in in regards to catalyst-driven opportunities, sort of first in terms of mining, and then I'll sort of go through a couple of other real asset sort of categories, uh, would be the battery metal space. It's really bombed out. Um, and while there may still be some pain this year, um, from a cyclical perspective, it's bombed out. You've got some people who are getting ready to turn on mines. You've got some people who are getting ready to finance, getting ready to go through permitting, things of that nature. So those uh, those types of non-commodity price catalysts are looking interesting in a couple of places, especially in regards to some uh, U.S.-focused uh, lithium names. Um, I'd also say, you know, sort of the, the perennial... Uh, metal that always offers sort of uh catalyst driven opportunities is gold miners you know the cycle for turning on a gold mine much shorter than uh copper or nickel or anything like that and so you know there are names juniors uh mid mid tiers um all of whom are you know getting ready to turn things on um one of our favorites we've been invested for far too long uh is equinox um turning on greenstone this year uh which you know, is going to be one of Canada's biggest gold mines. Um, and they've managed to mostly stay on budget despite inflation, which was good. They've absolutely stayed on time, which is excellent. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, last year, there was a nice play in Osino, which I know uh, you know quite well, and we were invested in last year. Um, haven't haven't dug as deep into what the new company is going to look like, but uh, the the assets in Namibia. Uh, you know they're going to turn those on relatively quickly. That's a that's a, a very straightforward mine to build, um, and so would be uh, optimistic about the potential there. Um, 
outside of that in mining, I think one's got to be really careful right now in picking their sort of spots. And we have some core sort of positions built within some copper miners that we really like, development opportunities. Uh, but I wouldn't be particularly optimistic outside of maybe, you know, random drill results that come in. Everyone gets excited about stuff like that. I wouldn't be particularly optimistic. Um, I think the the long-term case for copper is still intact. There doesn't seem to be any reason uh, why anyone would, um, or any strong argument against that. Uh, and um, even even this year, you know, copper demand out of China last year, which really drives the ship, uh, was up close to 10%, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, and it's, it's really being driven by uh, top-down policy from uh, the CCP about energy transition. And so uh, even in the presence of sort of a weak real estate market, their copper demand is is rocking. So I don't think copper is necessarily a great play for the next 12 months and names in copper may not move. Um, but, you know, it, it's probably a good time to start positioning for the latter half of the decade in my mind. Will, have you held Equinox since I last talked to you a few years ago? You were big on Equinox. Did you hold it through the sell-off? Yeah, well, we we trimmed a position during 2021 or 22. I, I, I'm blanking now on which. It sort of peaked at around 15. Uh, we trimmed the position there, um, held on to uh, a core position all the way down, doubled down at the bottom, uh, which is not that far off where we are currently. Um, and now we're sort of just sitting tight on the position that we've got. So, you know, management there uh, is great. Um, they're always available. They're always sort of transparent, or, or at least in my opinion, particularly transparent about what their plans are sort of going forward, what they're struggling with. They, of course, have great backing in the form of Ross Beattie. Um, so it's got, it checks, it checks a lot of boxes. I will admit that um, some of their assets are not the lowest cost in the world. Um, but when one sort of thinks about gold and, and right now looking for a name with a lot of torque, uh, to the gold price, um, that does have some, uh, ability to generate free cash flow, uh, when they pull back on the CapEx a little bit, um, you know, threading that needle high torque with the ability to produce, with the ability to execute, with the ability to grow. Uh, they're one of the sort of few names, um, I think, sort of fit that bill. And you only invest on the New York Stock Exchange. You don't play the OTC or the venture stocks, do you? No, we we, uh, we invest globally. Um, I mean, right now, I'd say just sort of looking at the portfolio um, in terms of mining stuff, most of it is is in Canada. Um, Equinox, we do own in the United States, but we used to own it in Canada before it listed in the U.S. But only the exchange, the big exchanges like the Toronto Exchange or the New York Exchange, or will you go on the CSE or the TSXB? No. Yeah, I, I don't have any problems with any of that. Um, you know, one just needs to sort of calibrate their risk and position sizing and just sort of be a little more cautious. We tend not to invest in anything less than about 200 million in market cap USD. Uh, but that's not a hard and fast rule. It's um, more a rule around liquidity. So if we can, if we find something particularly interesting that's smaller, 
and we are confident we can get in and out in a reasonable amount of time with the size we need, uh, we'll play we'll play in the, in, in the the smaller equities and off the major exchanges. Another position you had was Lithium America, as I remember when we chatted some well, years ago. Do you still hold that? Uh, well, so that's another another example of a company we rocketed up to just shy of forty dollars, um, which you know two pre-production mines forty dollars is forty dollars a share, and I, I don't remember what the market cap was at that time, but it, but it went on a run from our entry price of two and a half or something to that 40. So we trimmed uh, again, 2000, probably 22, um, and then held on to a small position uh, with the with a primary sort of focus on Thacker Pass and thinking that Thacker would become something interesting. Uh, now they've split the company. We still own a small position in both uh, Lithium Argentina uh, and Lithium Americas, which is Thacker Pass. Lithium Americas, we're keeping pretty small. It's still early days. Um, but in terms of sort of, you know, the, the thing about Lithium is, is you know, you got to have the right team who's done it before. The, lithium is complicated. Uh, it's not nearly, especially on the processing side, and that's, that's where the money's really made, if you will. Um, and so Lithium Americas has got the right team. They've done it before. They've got the right backing. Um, there are some other clay deposits and Thacker Pass in Nevada is a clay deposit. There are some other clay deposits in the United States that are um, maybe not, in my opinion, quite as interesting uh, long-term as Thacker Pass and Lithium Americas, but are themselves quite interesting. So Ioneer uh, and Surge Battery Metals would be two that I think are, are worth keeping an eye on and, and watching closely. Um, drill results and um, sort of grade out of surge battery metals and their uh, clay lithium deposit are, are quite spectacular. What about Kazatabram? I know you had a position in that stock some yeah. years ago. Um, so we haven't owned Kazatabram for a couple of years now. Uh, I mean, the story behind and, and uranium uh, and our Kazatabram investment sort of really demonstrate, at least in my opinion, sort of what we like to do. Um, which is find a company with company level catalysts within commodity industries that we can invest in that we expect to rise regardless of the commodity price action. Um, Kaz Adam Prom, we had watched uranium for 10 years, done nothing, right? Because the story had always been the same. Um, and we just couldn't find a company we wanted to own. In 2017, 18, uh, Kaz Adam Prom, must have been 2018, uh, Kaz Adam Prom IPO'd. Uh, and at IPO, you know, and sub thirty dollar uranium or something, um, they were profitable, free cash flow profitable. Uh, their uh, ISR mines in uh, Kazadam, uh in Kazakhstan uh, produce uranium at like fourteen dollars a pound, and the stock IPO'd at thirteen dollars a share or something um, with. Uh, spot price uranium implying like a, I don't know, 25 or $30 valuation. Um, so we invested in Kazadam Prom, uh, not because we had any expectations about uranium price, but because it was just a clear sure value opportunity and they were paying a dividend at the whole time. Um, we did exit when it hit probably 35-ish dollars a share. That was in 2022, I think. Uh, yeah, 2022. Last year, at the beginning of the year, 
We looked at uranium again, couldn't find a company we liked, but did feel like the macro setup for this story about uranium finally coming sort of uh, uh, full circle um, and sort of finally uh, being fulfilled with you know the supply demand imbalances. And so we bought the Sprott Uranium Trust. Um, and so we still have that. We've got, Jesus, it's uh, just shy of a 12% position now actually in our portfolio. So um, it's grown quite, uh, quite a bit. So what is your take on that then in terms of investing directly in the commodity via vehicle like that versus investing in an actual mining company? Could you share a little bit of your thinking here? Yeah. I mean, when it comes to equities, we never like the commodity price to be the catalyst. It, it, uh, we view it as, it's not that it can't be done. Um, we just view it as, as a little bit sloppy, if you will, in terms of the thesis, right? Because there are all these, let's say you buy a copper company or a copper miner, um, and it's because you think copper is going up. Well, there are all these other variables, political risk, execution risk, financing risk, all these other variables that get in the way. Um, so you could get your commodity price call completely right, but still lose your shirt because a mine is, I don't know, they don't turn on the mine or anything like that. So uh, we tend to be very company specific focused and you know try uh, to find companies where we think all the, all the boats are going in the same direction. Um, but our primary concern is uh, the company. When it comes to having a commodity price thesis, uh, our preference would be to just execute that. If we're going to do that, would be to execute it sort of directly via futures, because then you've sort of got that really clear alignment of thesis uh, and uh, sort of outcome. Um, one of the things that I think results in people losing money in the market um, is is not having as clear an idea of what your thesis is and how that thesis is going to impact the way you've executed your idea, right? Your, your thesis and your idea or, or how you execute it. There's got to be a very clear uh, causality there um, because there's too many variables going on. Uh, so in the case of uranium, um, you know, and uh, this happens in other places as well, um, with other commodities at times. Sometimes there's a great vehicle uh, that can save us the trouble of the futures. Um, never even looked at uranium price futures. I mean, they do exist, but they're cash settled. And, you know, I don't know what kind of liquidity there is on those. Um, but in this case, there's a, a very, very good um, instrument to execute a price sort of focused idea. And, and so that's our thought process behind it. So if you use futures, you're using leverage then, right? So yes. What's your thoughts We've, on how using leverage in the commodity space? Be very careful. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I would just say you've got to be very careful with how much leverage you take. Um, Do you remember when Donald Trump got elected and what gold did? How it, it went straight up <laughs> and then it came it, straight it went, back down. Straight I, I mean, I looked at that market. I said, if I was playing in the futures, I don't even know what I would do. Yeah. But. No, I mean, you just, I mean, this is why we oftentimes, I'll admit when we've done something in the past, uh, we've tended to fully collateralize it with cash that we then invest in treasuries. Now, last year, that was, that worked quite nicely, right? The cash earned, uh, you know, I mean, I, th I think we earned five percent on the cash all year for the one position that we had. Um, you know, you we go back to 
you know, not earning anything on cash, which I don't think is the base case, um, it won't be as attractive. Fully collateralizing it does mm, allow me to sleep a little better at night. What What's your most contrarian call for this year? Betting against the herd. I mean, I do think I do think lithium is going to do well. Um, I so I think there's a couple of things we, we see all, especially in the United States, we see all these headlines about EVs and and, and look. Batteries are what drive the lithium sort of story, and the battery story is really driven by EVs. Okay, I think we all know that, but just it needs to be said. Um, we see all these headlines uh, about EV this and EV slowing down, sort of demand not there. Um, but EV demand last year grew greater, uh, uh, still grew at more than fifty percent. Right? I mean, EVs are selling, uh, and it, the market is growing, um, and that's just the United States. Europe and China, it's a completely different story. And those headlines about EV demand slowing, um, they not only don't apply there, but uh, they're just wrong. And in the United States, yeah, sure, it, it did slow, but I'm sorry, it slowed to increasing 50% in a year instead of 55 or 60. Granted, that's slowing, but you know, one's got to be sort of careful about um, writing too big a novel. Uh, about what going from 60% per annum growth to 50% per annum growth really means for the underlying commodity. Um, right now, at current prices in China, um, you know, you're not really incentivizing much production to come online. Uh, I think the Chinese probably underwrite a lot of production within China that is not uh, cost effective. Um, and they certainly look like they're going to do that in Africa as well. Uh, but I still don't see them bringing online uh, supply that'll swamp the market. Um, uh, and even then, they're bringing online, you know, lapidolite and these really sort of crummy resources. Um, you look at the United States and and sort of the, and it's pretty easy to find one of these, you know, you sort of Google uh, gigafactories in the United States, and you'll find a map that shows you, you know, 40 gigafactories that are planned or being built. Well, things like Thacker Pass, which, you know, hopefully is turned on in two years, that's the lithium for one gigafactory. Um, you look at these plans and you see multiple gigafactories, you need multiple Thacker Passes. You need uh, you need to really ramp supply. Um, and last year, everyone sold uh, renewables, everybody sold lithium. Uh, the sort of shine came off the ESG sort of green uh, story, which I think was more than warranted. I think a lot of that stuff ran, especially on the straight renewable side, wind and solar companies, especially solar. Uh, but now it's sort of just gone. Um, it's just gone a little too far in the other direction, if you will. Um, you know, as the market does, it never finds that that middle ground. It, it over always overshoots one direction or the other. I think it's overshot now in the other direction. Um, so I, I think lithium is particularly interesting here. Uh, I don't think nickel's interesting. Um, I've got one nickel position in Centaurus. We really like the deposit. It's in Brazil, but I will be fully, I will be fully transparent. I am down sixty percent in that position and just have gotten my ass handed to me. Um, so uh, other battery metals, less optimistic about for this year. Uh, but lithium, I do think there are interesting companies, interesting deposits, and interesting macro backdrop. So of lithium or solar slash renewables for the contrarian bet, if you had to choose between those two, you would choose lithium? 
because some of the renewable energy ETFs, they're starting to perk up. And yeah. I've talked to um, people that think they're oversold right now. Yeah, I, I would I would still probably choose lithium. I, I think it's a harder, they're harder, there'll be harder positions to own, uh, if you will, from a behavioral perspective. Um, but I think your risk reward ends up being better. I still think the renewables, the challenge with a lot of the renewable businesses in my mind is they still haven't necessarily really figured out what their business model is. Um, and and I, what I mean by that is solar and wind really are effective sources of energy in the right place. I think the interesting analogy is mining, right? So I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. When I first moved in, in my house, I walked into the backyard and it was a mess. And, and I, I tried to grow grass one year, couldn't grow grass. So I took a, a soil sample and sent it off someplace. And they were going to tell me what kind of fertilizer I needed. And when they came back, they said, there's iron in your soil. And I was like, okay, there's iron in my soil. Okay. Just because there's iron in my soil doesn't mean I can build an iron ore mine in my backyard. Okay, Just because there's sun in my backyard and wind doesn't mean I can put solar panels and wind turbines in my backyard. People seem to think that just because the sun shines, the wind blows, you can cost-effectively and economically put solar and wind there. That's not the case. It's harvesting a natural resource, which means the site really is quite important. I don't think a lot of the renewable companies have yet to figure out their business model such that their capital is on average being deployed into capital and energy efficient locations. Um, it's sort of, again, you, you know, you like to look at the the Permian in oil, right? And people want to be on the fairway. They want to be on that, that core territory. Um, this is the same story. You got to find the core territory and that's where you want to be. And if you start throwing solar panels up just anywhere where you can put them or wind turbines up anywhere you can put them, um, the long term is not going to be economic. Uh, so some of those guys, I still think, need to figure out their business model. Um, and so companies like Orsted, uh, you know, I think they still have some work to do to figure out what they really want to focus on and where they can really deploy capital with, say, offshore turbines, for example, efficiently and effectively. Um, and until they get their business model sorted out or until I get some inkling that they've got it sorted out, um, probably just going to sit on the sidelines. Uh, we do have a position and we like it quite a bit uh, in Siemens Energy, which um, manufactures Siemens Gamesa is the you know, number one, two, or three largest wind turbine manufacturer uh, in the world, depending on whether you're talking about offshore or onshore. Um, while the developers still need to figure out your business model, uh, the OEMs uh, have work to do also, uh, especially on the cost front. Um, but I'd sort of rather sell the, the picks and the shovels, if you will, into the industry uh, than have outright exposure to it, especially because that outright exposure is so often underwritten by uh, a tax subsidy of some kind, which, which in my mind makes the business model unsustainable. Or some view that as lowering the cost of capital, though. So you would not take that view. Yeah, I would not take that view. Um, and I would not take that view again because um, Donald Trump comes into office. I don't know if those subsidies will still be there. I, I imagine they will. Um, but you know, you're you're making a political bet uh, that the winds, no pun intended, don't change in D.C. or in Europe, um, and that uh, if they do, um, those companies can still make money with their sort of recycling of capital. Uh, and it's just not clear to me that um, 
with the cost of the equipment, the cost of electricity, um, and the continuous effort to drive down the cost of electricity that they can. I think a couple of years ago, we did a, a study looking at solar supply chains, and we tried to put together the, the profit pool for a solar value chain from polysilicon production onto to, to the end use. Um, and I haven't updated the research, but I'd be surprised if it's changed that much. There was just not enough money in the profit pool to go around. Not everybody in that chain could make money. If not everybody in the value chain can make money, it's not sustainable. You know, that was with Chinese subsidized energy that, you know, we, we couldn't back out what that subsidy would be. Um, so, you know, uh, you get the cheapest panels from China uh, and that value chain still doesn't produce enough such that everyone can earn something. That's a problem. I you know part of the argument or counter argument to what you're sharing would some of the solar proponents would say, well, the oil industry in the States was subsidized to help it mature, to get to where it is. Even the nuclear industry, I, I meet nuclear people that don't realize that the U.S. government has helped a lot. Go look at the last plant that was built in Georgia. Let's not close our eyes to that. No, no. And, and I mean, I don't, um, I don't argue against the need for uh, subsidies necessarily to help some industries get going. I, I think anyone that does, to your point, is sort of closing their eyes to a lot of very easy to access information, right? You know, um, I mean, as you said, the oil industry gets subsidies. Everybody gets subsidies. In the United States, everybody's getting something. Um, the question is whether when you back that subsidy out, at least in my mind, the question is when you back that subsidy out, can you still make money? Uh, oil companies can tend, tend to still make money. Uh, it's solar and wind, it's more of a coin flip. And I will grant you that I'm sure there's somebody that can, I'm sure there are many people who can present me evidence that I'm wrong, uh, but it's going to be close enough that it's not sort of outside my margin of error, my my, my error bands, right? Um, uh, and even I could fiddle. I remember fiddling with some of the, the results in that study that we did. You could swing it one way or the other, but it's still, we're not talking about swinging it such that clearly uh, the lack of profitability is false. Um, it was swinging it enough such that you're sort of like, okay, maybe they can skim by. Yeah. I, I'd rather not. Um, I'd rather not play in that space until until they've figured it out. Another commodity that's out there that wasn't talked about when I was in high school is carbon credits. Now, I've talked to smart people who on the one end think it's a scam and on, who on the other end think it's the next best opportunity. Uh, where would you fit within that spectrum? So um, we did buy carbon credits in Europe in middle of 2022, I guess, um, and sold them last year, having not really made or lost money. It just sort of was a push based on our timing. Um, I think carbon credits are interesting in the right market. I think the only legitimate market is really Europe. I, I know some people talk about California. Um, haven't really spent a lot of time looking at it, but in Europe, they appear to really be pushing hard and on a grand, in the grand scheme of things quickly uh, towards a carbon market that really covers all industries. Um, and, and at least from my perspective, that's the direction you need to be headed uh, if you want to build a real market around this. Um, there is the liquidity. Uh, what I will say is that the regulatory component of that is sort of the most critical thing to understand at this point still. I don't think that 
know, the, the, the EU regulations specifically stipulate sort of how the credits come in every year, how many are coming out and being canceled, how many are given away for free. There's quite a, a very deliberate system uh, put in place. And so if you're interested in carbon credits, those are the documents you really need to dig into um, because, you know, little adjustments here and there as they go along to the regulations uh, can sort of swing the supply and demand um, in in fairly meaningful ways for the marginal price. Um, as I said, you know, we had invested in it at one point. We thought that the market would tighten up. And I still think from a regulatory driven perspective, it is going to tighten. Uh, but it just sort of seemed like capital that was going to be very slow moving. And so there was sort of an opportunity cost associated with deployment into it. Um, I think for the next couple of years, it moves slowly because the tightening is primarily regulation driven. Uh, and so that, you know. So the product doesn't exist without the government, whereas copper exists without the government, silver exists well, without yeah, the that, government. That, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, so is no, it a real I, thing? I, if you invest in real things, is it a real yeah, thing? Yeah, it, so that's it doesn't, what it doesn't exist yet without the government. Yeah. Um, I think at some point it will in Europe. Uh, but yeah, it, it, for, for at least the next five to 10 years, it's just sort of continuous tinkering and tightening by the regulators. Then mm -hmm. So, Will, your website is massivecap.net. Can you uh, share with listeners what they can find there? Yeah. Um, so, we actually just redid our website. So, .net, .com, .org, all of those um, you can find us at. You know, you can find all our letters going back till 2016 on the website. Uh, you can also find blogs, research reports, links to podcasts that we've done, um, and you can get on our research subscriber list. We send out our letter via the subscriber list. We also send out a couple of blogs, uh, sort of a quarter. Um, we took sort of last year, we took a bit of the year off um, just because some changes in the business, but we're back at it and, you know, sort of have high hopes to produce a fair amount of research this year uh, that supports the sort of work we're doing at the fund. Um, deep dives into uh, commodities, energy transition, stuff like that. So it's all available on our website. It's all basically free and, and open, open to anyone. Excellent. Well, I really enjoyed catching up with you, Will. It was a few years. So uh, thanks for coming on today's show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly.
The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.